this is week five of, uh, of the series, We Have Issues 2020. We had a great thing this past week. The, uh, the local newspaper ran an article about our church. It's pretty cool. And um, the, their uh, photographers are stealthy. I didn't even see them show up the first week, but they came and took pictures. And, and I had a, a conversation with a reporter a few weeks ago. It was about a half an hour. And uh, he asked great questions about our church. And I got the sense that um, as we talked that... Um, he, he saw the need for churches like this. And he actually asked me, he said, are churches like the well very common? And I said, well, I don't know. I guess that, that depends on, on who you would ask, but I, I think there need to be more of them. What do you think? Where churches can talk about difficult issues, and it's just acknowledged that, of course, everybody in the room is not going to agree. On, you know, on, on a controversial issue. Of course that's not going to happen. But that's why, perhaps, we need to talk about them. Because what we're seeing in our culture is when we don't have respectful dialogues is um, a polarization to where the extreme voices and the loudest voices, and there's a lot of name-calling going on, tend to be the ones that control the conversation. I just had a great convo, actually, right before the service with somebody who was saying it's just a, it's a moment-by-moment decision to not get sucked into that. When, when it doesn't mean that you don't have strong opinions, or of course you do, convictions, of course, and you vote, and you march, and you protest, you all the things that you feel like you should do to speak, you know, speak from your conscience. But it just seems like it's so easy to get pulled into an echo chamber whereas, where all we hear is our own opinion just f- feeding back at us. And that can, be, that can be a difficult place to be and a destructive place to be. Because then conversation is not possible anymore. And so I got the sense that, you know, that the paper appreciated what we're doing and they treated us well. And I just wanted to thank you for being a part of a congregation like that. Where, where the local news knows, oh, here's a church where there are thinking people. And, and they're doing good things there. So I thought that was cool and it's something, something to celebrate. So today we're talking about the topics of wealth inequality and climate change. And... Uh, most of us understand that the wealth gap in the United States is growing larger. Now, there are, of course, different opinions. There are folks who are okay with that. Most Americans are not, as we will see here uh, later on in the sermon. But you may be feeling financial anxiety right now. This is a topic that affects everybody today. And so, as you sit in the service today, you may be feeling stress over money it may be difficult for you to make ends meet. You may, you may have had a health crisis, maybe a job loss, or you're looking at changing jobs, and, and money is tight for you right now. Right after the holidays, of course, we get that, uh, we get that credit card bill. And, and so this may be a difficult time for you. If it is, you're not alone. You're not the only person facing financial anxiety in this country. Let's look at some stats. NerdWallet reported that by the end of 2018... The average U.S. household debt was $136,206. Revolving credit card debt was $6,829. U.S. credit card debt reached its highest level ever of $870 billion. Auto loan debt was uh, 27, uh, uh, the average was $27,708. The average student loan debt is 46783 I'll be honest with you, I went to four years of seminary. My student loan debt is north of that number you know, after, after a master's degree. That's far more debt than previous generations of Americans have carried, and it's rising. 
One in six Americans have past due medical bills, a debt totaling $81 billion in healthcare costs. So I think most middle class people have awakened to the fact that we are not doing as well as the previous generation. That is true. Financially, it is, it is more difficult now to get ahead than it was in the previous generations. Uh, there are two primary ways that we've fallen uh, behind. We pay a high per- higher percentage of our income uh, in taxes uh, than the wealthy and high debt. And so uh, here's a, a chart about the distribution of family wealth in the United States. This is 2016. I know you can't really see the numbers, so I'll read them for you, but you see that curve, don't you, in the green? So th- this is the total wealth of the top 1% and the bottom... Um, Make sure I've got the not, uh, wrong chart. Let me, let me just come over here and read it. This is the bottom of the United States. This is negative 80,000. This is people whose net worth is in, in, in the red by $80,000. And then this is the 50th percentile of wealth. And, well, we can go back to that, uh, the, the green uh, slide. There we go. Here's the 50th percentile. And now as we approach the 99th percentile, you can see what happens in the distribution of family wealth in the United States, that's 10.4 million. That's um, an average number, of course. But as you look at the distribution of wealth in the United States, it doesn't really start to curve up until 75%, 80% of the way up, correct? Do you see what I'm seeing? And so I think a lot of people would probably think of, of wealth in the United States, and well, there are poor people and rich people, and there are people who work harder, than others. There are people who have, were born with more opportunity than others. There are some who got luckier than others. And there are all kinds of factors that, that you know, determine people's levels of wealth. But I think a lot of people would not realize that's what the curve looks like. That there's a dramatic rise in wealth concentrated at the very top. And it does not trickle down to most people in the United States. This next chart Thank you, Susie. This is the total wealth of the top 1% and the bottom 50% in 1989 compared with 2018. So the red is 1989. The top 1% here are represented here with, uh, I believe, $8 trillion. The bottom 50%, $0.7 trillion. The black is 2018. 20, $29 trillion to negative for the bottom 50 Negative, debt. And so there's been a dramatic change in family wealth in the United States since even 1989. Uh, The next uh, chart shows how uh, family income has diverged from productivity uh, from 1947 to 2014. The darker line is the productivity of the American workforce. The light blue line is the real median family income. So you can see throughout most of the 20th, well, the last half of the 20th century, those lines were pretty much uh, next to each other, that you earned something fair to what you produced with your work. And then we see right around 1980, that productivity line crosses the real median family income line, and it hasn't looked back since. And so 
that, what that means is wages have stagnated. Now, you see there's, there's a little bit of an uptick, but right now we are about where we were in the mid-90s, around 1995. And so the American workers' productivity has continued to rise, but wages have not risen with it. You've probably seen this graphic. If wealth were divided like a U.S. map, uh, this shows uh, how wealth would be divided. 1%, of course, this. 9% on this. 30% on this. 20%, the little part of Texas here. 40% of the people in the United States would own this red dot if wealth were represented by geography in the United States. And then finally, the marginal tax rate for the wealthiest individuals in the United States has decreased from 1960 to today. The top line there in purple, that's the, marginal, the top marginal tax rate for the wealthiest individuals in the United States. And uh, that has uh, decreased while the rest of the taxes you know, paid by um, lower earning Americans has stayed basically the same except for a, a dip there. Um, and that dip was in the... Uh, in the 80s. When, when we look at facts like this, especially in a, a more conservative or mixed area like the Southeast Valley of Phoenix, there are people, Ryan, are you attacking people who earn and they work hard? And, and of course not. I don't want to attack people for making money and doing well. I want to do well in life. I don't know about you. But no, we're, so we're not attacking people. What we're doing is we're pointing out facts, factual information. And to many of us, it's not really a surprise because we can feel that. I remember when I was, when I was uh, kind of growing up in the 80s, um, in my hometown in Ohio, the factory jobs were the, were the good jobs. That's where you really wanted to work. And if you could get in at Whirlpool, you, know, you were set. That was something to celebrate. And I remember you know, the, the neighbor worked at Whirlpool, and they got an, an above-ground pool. You remember people in the Midwest, do you remember when you thought an above-ground pool was sexy? You remember that? And so they had an above-ground pool, and they had a couple of cars in a nice house. I thought, wow, you know, he works at Whirlpool. Wow. Look, look how well he does. And those days are long gone. And that area is now called the Rust Belt, where I'm from, because those factory jobs were outsourced. And, and so lots of Americans don't need to look at charts to feel this, but it helps to explain at least the, the, the pressure that some people feel. I'm not an economist. I'm not a crusader. I just think it's important that we look at facts and that we understand the times that we live in and how our experience is different than the experience of the, the previous one or two generations. So the widening wealth gap in America means more than just the amount of money you have. It also means that those with more have more influence in our society. So with a, a widening gap in wealth comes a widening gap in influence. And that's what brings us to the second uh, issue we're looking at today, which is uh, the climate. Now, first of all, we're a church, and a lot of church people in the United States are either more conservative or they come from a more conservative background. Maybe that doesn't apply to you, but it does to a lot of church people in the United States. Many of us come from conservative, you know, religious and political backgrounds. 
if you've heard my story before, you know I was raised in a fundamentalist Christian home. Pat Robertson and the 700 Club it was on my TV every single day. I believe whatever Pat said, whatever Pat told me about reality, I believe that. Because that's, that's what I was, I was used to watching. Up until the mid-2000s, I watched a certain cable news network every single day. And, and I believed what I heard. I, it fit my worldview. It fit my background, the way I was raised. And, uh, and I, I wanted to share honestly today as we talk about these issues. There was a time in my life, it's been a while, but there was a time in my life when I would hear the, the term environmentalist and I would roll my eyes. I'd be like, oh, okay. Liberal shills. You know, I didn't, I didn't really bash people, but I used the word tree hugger from time to time. And, and, and I just remember, because of my background and, and, and the media that I watched, I just felt like those people were way out there and, and not really in touch with reality and, and, and kind of shills. And, and I just, I didn't take the issue seriously for a long time. And uh, so... Um, not only did I doubt that climate change was real, but I looked down on people who thought it was important. Even people like Brian McLaren became a friend of mine who's a well-known uh, author, Christian author, and, and he, would, um, he would make like, social media posts about environmental causes. And even you know, 10 years ago, I'd be like, oh, okay, all right. I just, I didn't, I didn't take it seriously. And I looked down on people who did. So last week, I already told a story about my, my nine-year-old Graham. Last week, you know, it's January, and it's time to exercise, and time to, time to work off the eggnog from the holidays. And so I decided, like everybody else, of course, typical, like I need to work out, you know, in January. And so I started running outside, and, and uh, you know, he has a Fitbit, and he's an athletic little guy. He was PE student of the year a couple of years ago, and he wanted to come out and run with me. And I said to Hannah, you know, do you think I should, should I take him out running? And I said, you know, his legs are so much shorter than mine. And I'm just afraid, he's nine, and I'm just afraid that if we get out there, we're going to start running, and, and he's going to get tired, and I don't want to hurt him. You know, I don't, I don't want him to feel like he has to keep up with dad and just push too hard, and I would feel horrible if I, you know, if I just tired him out like that. And so she said, well, I, I think it'll be okay. And so we, he went ahead and, and ran with me. And uh, about three quarters of a mile down the road, he started to pull ahead. And I said, bud, stay back here with daddy. And he turned around to me and he said, daddy, are you okay? And I said, why? And he said, you're, he started to giggle. He's like, you're just kind of breathing heavy. And I'm like, no pain, no gain. Or I passed it off, you know, something like that. And so I had, a, I had a, an, another moment. Where I got home and I, I said to, to Hannah, I'm like, yeah, my, I said our nine-year-old totally smoked his old man. And so all concern was unnecessary. And even like two and a half miles in, we ran a little over two and a half miles, two and a half miles in, he asked me if, if he could play basketball like Michael Jordan, if he, if he runs like this, because I'd shown him a Jordan highlight video. And so I'm just huffing and puffing two and a half miles in. And he starts like skipping and jumping, mimicking Michael Jordan. In the, in the, oh, my goodness. Okay, this is way worse than I thought. And so we got home and, and I said, yeah, and no, need to, no need to worry about it, honey. I think he's going to be just fine running with me. And I was thinking about, you know, why did I think that? Of course, 
we all think we're above average, probably. And, and, and at the same time, like, you look at your child, and they're always your little boy, your little girl. There's always some part of them that's always your little one, and you just always kind of see him that way. And, and I wasn't ready to admit that he could smoke his old man. And, and at the same time, like, I th- you know, before I expressed my concern about him running with me, I, it's not like I looked for evidence. You know, I didn't take him to the doctor and let's take a stress test and compare his heart strength and stamina to mine. We didn't go to the gym and take a fitness test and a treadmill or something. I didn't look for evidence uh, to support my concern that he may not be able to keep up with me. It was emotional. It was just emotional. It's my little boy, and I don't want him to get hurt, and, you know, I think I'm going to outrun him or something. And it was just based on emotion. When it comes to an issue like climate change, and I think wealth inequality too, a lot of us, like me, are informed by our own backgrounds, our own experiences, the media we consume, our friends, our family, the emails people send to us, the the posts we see on Facebook, and we make decisions about what we think about these issues, not really based on evidence, but based on emotion. And like me getting it wrong with my little boy, We don't really want to admit when we get it wrong, when we didn't look at the evidence and we make a decision or take a stance based on emotion and then then over time it starts to appear more and more that we were wrong about that. We don't want to admit that. It's embarrassing. Nobody wants to be wrong, but when I was able to run with my boy and observe reality, I saw clear evidence that I had no reason to be concerned about him keeping up with his old man. And if you look at the issue of climate change, if you feel emotional about the issue uh, and you're uncomfortable about talking about it in church, I mean, that's all right. Like I said, I, that was me for a long time. And we're all in different places and, and uh, you know, we live in different worlds and exposed to different media and so on. And, and you may think climate change is a hoax and people who talk about it are being dramatic or naive or they're being duped. Um, And I want to ask you a question, though. If it is emotional for you, in kind of a negative way, like, man, I don't understand why he's talking about this today. If if you kind of have that emotional reaction, I want to ask you, what's behind that? What caused that? Was it watching certain cable news channels? Is it reading certain websites on the Internet? Is it people texting you things or you know, emailing you things, and you've just kind of been surrounded. The person earlier I was talking with said that our media can almost be like a tide coming in and, and surrounding us before we know it. And all of a sudden, we're, we're knee-deep in water, and we didn't realize it because it's just all around us all the time. So if you feel emotional about it, that's okay, but why? I'm, just, I'm asking uh, if you would consider exploring where all that comes from, where your emotion comes from around this issue. And is it based on evidence? Is the emotion based on evidence? Many of us really don't understand the science behind climate change um, and what's been driving this movement to to be more aware of climate change. Um, Some of us are up in the air about it. We're not really sure what to think about the issue, and we may not really know that much about it. But I think the, the organization at least based on my research, who's done the best job at explaining what climate change is and why it's happening is NASA. 
and they have the tools available to them. They have, of course, satellite technology, and then there are climate scientists on the ground measuring ice cores, and, and they can literally zoom in on pictures of the Arctic and the ice over time and compare that to their database. And so I want to, I want to show you two clips. Um, these are from NASA. They're about three minutes each, and I think they do an amazing job at just giving the, a basic explanation of what climate change is and what's causing it. So let's watch that first clip. Check it out. NASA has shown us that ours is a precious planet. NASA has unique capabilities because we have the point of view from space. With NASA's carbon monitoring system, you can see the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere decreasing in the spring and the summer. Plants of the oceans and the land surface are greening up and pulling the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And then in the fall and in the wintertime, you'll see the CO2 in the atmosphere increasing because plants and animals are releasing the carbon dioxide that was captured during the growing season. There is a graph called the Keeling Curve, where you can see the summer and winter cycle. The process is very natural. Contrast that with old slow carbon. So this is a chunk of coal. It was also made by plants. It also contains carbon dioxide that was in the atmosphere. But the carbon in this chunk of coal was taken out of the atmosphere 350 million years ago. And since the Industrial Revolution, we've been taking it out of the ground and using it for a fuel. The burning of fossil fuels, whether it's coal, oil, or natural gas, has released this very, very old carbon back into the atmosphere a lot faster than uh, the oceans and the plants uh, on the land can take it out of the atmosphere. It's bit by bit moving the Keeling curve up. Nineteen eighty-nine was the last time we saw three hundred and fifty parts per million. And it appears that twenty sixteen will be the last time that CO two has dipped below four hundred parts per million. And what the heck is 400 parts per million? What does that even mean? Well, we know from the analysis of ice samples from Antarctica that before the Industrial Revolution, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was about 275 parts per million. It had been this way for thousands of years. Something has increased the number from 275 to 400. quite certain that that is due to the human activity of burning fossil fuels. That graph is striking, isn't it? When you see that same curve uh, towards, the, towards the right side of the screen, that same curve in the carbon parts per million that have uh, 
have been building up in our atmosphere. And so the science behind this is actually pretty simple to understand. Millions of years ago, plants pulled carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. They use that for their fuel. They release oxygen. Those plants die. They go into the ground over time. They're covered with other layers of ground on top of them. They turn to coal or oil or natural gas. And then as we mine, we bring that carbon that what used to be in the atmosphere, we bring it up out of the ground, and then we release it into the atmosphere all over again. That's the science behind climate change. And, and so the second three-minute clip is about, you know, what if we don't act? How will this buildup of carbon in the atmosphere affect our planet? Let's, let's watch. I take these satellite measurements and the, the variation over time of how the world is changing as facts. We've seen this warming over the last century and a half, very, very meticulous measurements. And it shows a really sharp acceleration in the warming over the last four decades. People have a hard time understanding what's a big deal for a planet that is warmer by a degree or warmer by two degrees Celsius. But the impacts that we're worried about are being triggered not at a 20 degree warmer world, but they're being triggered at a one degree warmer world. Over the last decades, we've seen the ice melting. We've seen the ice melting at the North Pole. We've seen the ice melting really fast on Greenland, where it's falling off Greenland into the ocean. We've had Pacific Islands that have already had to be abandoned because of sea level rise. We can combine our data with global climate models and say, how is sea level going to change over the next 5, 10, 15 years? Because if we continue on the path we're doing, there's going to be a lot of coastal communities all around the world that are going to be flooded. As scientists, we're just taking the most precise data that we can. It's open data. It's factual. For instance, the enormous droughts and fires that we have around the world directly related to a warmer planet. That has a huge impact on people. It's unprecedented. If you have a warmer atmosphere that can hold more moisture, because that's what warmer atmospheres do, they can suck up more moisture, that means more convection, more big thunderstorms, more hurricanes, more extreme weather. That's one of the likely outcomes of a warming world. We've built our civilization around the current climate, our coastal cities, our food resources, our water resources. They're all pegged to the current climate, and there's not much slack in the system. We're already seeing impacts, and impacts are going to increase. In a two-degree warming world, there'll be more. And at a three degree in the world, there'll be even more. And when you're looking at those kind of scenarios, three, four, five degrees warmer, which are totally plausible, if we go down that path, we will be looking at a different planet. So every week in the series, we've been trying to fairly represent two sides of an issue. And in, in these two issues, it's a little different because there isn't really a bulk of scientific research that contradicts NASA on climate change. There are, of course, people who will look at scientific data, and I noticed one of the, one of the 
patterns you'll see is they'll look at maybe one month. Uh, like, you know, April 2017, look, the, the, the average temperature was cooler that month in this place than it's been over time. But, and that's an anomaly. So they'll, you know, they, instead of looking at the big trend of, of clear carbon skyrocketing and, 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 and the earth warming, they'll zero in on a little, you know, one month and say, oh, that's, see, that's proof it's not really happening instead of looking at the big picture. When I read that research, I thought, wow, that looks like somebody's intentionally trying to mislead, even. And so there isn't really peer-reviewed scientific research that is challenging what NASA and other climate scientists have found about climate change. It really isn't there. Now, depending on the media you consume, you might be told otherwise. But we're looking at somewhere, you know, 95, 97, 98% of climate scientists in the world are in agreement on this. When I talked to the reporter, Santan Sun, he said, um, do you think you might bring in experts to, to talk about like two sides of the issue? And I said, well, that's a good idea. I mean, on some of these you definitely could. I said, here on this particular issue, though, to, to bring in one person who gives the NASA data and another person who disagrees with that, that would not really show the picture. I would have to invite 97 NASA scientists and three who disagree with them in order to show an accurate picture of the scientific community and how they feel about climate change. The two sides of the issue here for both income inequality or wealth inequality and climate change are really economic, um, economic concerns and economic challenge to wealth inequality and climate change. That, well, if we, if, we, if we cap carbon emissions, it's going to hurt business or it's going to hurt the fossil fuel industry if we're not mining and, and burning as much coal or, or oil or natural gas and, or gas prices are going to go up. Or, you know, there are economic concerns, not so much scientific concerns. And so why did climate change become political? How did this become this politically charged issue that a lot of people are uncomfortable talking about it? And some people are like, you're talking about climate change in church? Whoa, wow. Like, are, are you crazy? Like, what, what could happen, you know? And how did it become so controversial and political? Well, when the scientists began discovering this carbon skyrocketing in parts per million, they said, well, this looks to be because of the carbon that used to be in the ground is being mined and burned. And so the simple solution is, well, stop, stop mining and burning that carbon. And that would, that would take care of this issue. That would stop uh, the carbon emissions and, and there wouldn't be an issue with climate change. But of course, and I have a retirement you know, fund and I have funds for my children's education and, and I'm sure there are, there are fossil fuel industry uh, funds mixed in there. And of course, it became an issue because there's so much money that is made taking carbon out of the ground and putting it back into the atmosphere unbelievable amounts of money. And so it became so political because it became economic. And so now the battle seems to be there's a lot of money to be made taking carbon out of the ground and putting it back into the air. But then that's also changing the makeup of our planet. And so in the business community even and in both both major political parties now. There's a growing realization that we can't keep doing this. So, for example, uh, Yale uh, 
published an article last, uh, actually July of 2018, fossil fuel interests have outspent environmental activists 10 to 1 on climate lobbying. More than $2 billion was spent on lobbying climate change legislation in the United States from 2000 to 2016, with the fossil fuel industry, transportation companies, and utilities outspending environmental groups and the renewable energy industry 10 to 1, according to a new analysis published in the Journal of Climactic Change. Um, special interests dominate the conversation, all working for a particular advantage for their industry, Robert Buell of Drexel University told Think Progress. The common good is not represented. So why are these two issues linked, wealth inequality and climate change? With a greater wealth gap, there is a gap in influence. And in all the issues that we've looked at, and we're not trying to demonize, there are people who make their living, of course, doing this, and people who feed their families, and this is a difficult issue. It's not easy. It's not, it's not simple. Let's not pretend that it is. Um, but in all of these issues that we've looked at, the American people have a certain point of view, often two-thirds of the American people, super majorities, like that could instantly become law, and two-thirds of America would agree with that law, but it doesn't happen. Why is that? One of the reasons is the amount of money that flows into our political process. And what it looks like is there are companies, and this is true of any special interest group in any industry, who just give money to the political campaigns of congresspersons. And if you give people a lot of money, you expect they're going to help you in your industry. It's not, it's not complicated. And so we've seen this, this flooding of money in all these issues into the campaigns of our elected officials, and it just seems to be that the will of the people is not really being done in the United States. Instead, it's the will of people with the most money, as we see that wealth gap increasing. Now, there are people who watch these videos, or, and they any discussion of these issues, and it's emotional for them, and when they're confronted with facts like myself, and remember me talking about my journey, how I've changed on this. When you're confronted with new information, you have a choice to make. You can either double down and, and pretend that that evidence doesn't exist or just cite other reasons, you know, economic reasons why we can't make changes, we can't do this, we can't phase in this in, towards wind and solar, oh, it's just too, too expensive and... And, and you can double down on that, or like most, of, most Americans have, have now done, you can start to morph, change in your views. Let, let your mind change over time when presented with new information, like I have been challenged to do, and like most Americans have. And I think we just have to say this, though, to be honest because that is such a difficult thing, um, there are people who, when presented with new information, refuse to change their minds. Mark Twain is, uh, is credited with saying uh, something I want to show you here. It's easier to fool people than to convince them they've been fooled. That it's easy to control the conversation or dominate or bombard people with media or people are just raised a certain way like I was and for years and years and years they think a certain thing. And then it's even harder 
Twain said to convince somebody, you know what? Somebody duped you. There was so much money thrown at the media, thrown at elected officials, thrown at, at websites and talking heads. And there was so much money thrown at them that they could contradict NASA. They can get you to believe that the talking head on the cable news channel knows more about the atmosphere than NASA. You know, they can, they can get you to believe that the horizon off in the distance this week in Phoenix was not brown. And then if you pulled out your weather app on your phone, you saw, you know, unhealthy air quality for sensitive groups on your weather app that when you go outside, no, it's, if you have asthma, no, it's okay. You, you, can, you can breathe just fine. There's nothing to see here. You see, there, there is an amount of money that is so great that, that the thoughts and emotions of people can be bought. Governments can be bought. You know, there, there are people who throw their money around on a, on a new car. And they think, you know, that, that sweet car proves that I'm awesome. There are people who can throw their money around on a new congressman. That's a different kind of purchase. But th- that there is that kind of money. And so it's difficult when you, when you kind of wake up and, wait a second, what's real? What do I believe? Because I've been surrounded by this, by this media so long and these opinions in my social groups and my friends and my family who all believe the same thing. And, but, but I'm confronted with this new information. And I think NASA kind of knows what they're talking about. And I'm a smart person and I generally trust science. And now I have some decisions to make. It's embarrassing. It's like admitting that your, your nine-year-old can smoke his old man. It's hard. It's embarrassing. But it's also part of growth and, and, and changing your mind. And so um, these two issues are also connected because climate change adversely affects the poor. Now, it also affects our children. So all the kids back there and well kids, those kids are going to see 2100. Do you realize that? I'm not going to be around to see that, but a lot of these kids will. What kind, of, what kind of planet will they inhabit? But climate change adversely affects the poor. So what does our faith say about climate change as we wrap up and wealth inequality? Well, um, first of all, I think people who have any kind of general familiarity with Jesus or the Christian faith understand that Jesus cared for the poor. And when we talk about people who are already vulnerable and in and, and, and areas that are, fam- are prone to famine and their, their weather is going to be more extreme and the famines will increase, well, what does, what does Jesus think about that? Well, Jesus cares about those people. And then there's a the relationship of faith and science. One of the tools you can use to get people to deny science is religion. Can you see how that works? How can you get somebody to believe that, you know, hey, 97, 98% of the scientists in the world are wrong? You know, they're either wrong or they're lying to you. It's conspiracy. Or they just, they're just lying to get the grant money because they just find what they're paid to find. And, you know, you can't really trust those scientists. How could that be so effective falling on the ears of a, of a person who grew up like I did in a fundamentalist Christian home? Because they're taught not to believe in evolution, Correct. They're taught to believe that scientists are lying and the world is 6,000 years old and God just created the world. Poof, there it was 6,000 years ago. And all these scientists are lying to you. You see, so for a certain type of Christian in the United States, 
they're more prone to the influence of, of, of money and people saying to them, all oh, that climate data, you don't have to listen to NASA. All those scientists, they don't know what they're talking about because it, it tickles their religious ears as well. We've talked about some of these verses before, but let's just read them quickly. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, 27, and then Genesis 2, 15. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female, he created them. Chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and what? Trash it? Pollute it? To what? Take care of it. So the very same scripture that's used to make us doubt science, it's all a conspiracy. That very same scripture says that we're created in the image of God as God's VPs. As you've heard me say before, that was a, a way of, of uh, referring to kings and queens in the ancient world that they were created in the image of God. The scripture says all people are created in the image of God. We're all kings and queens in God's eyes. We're all God's senior VPs in his company that he's running. And, and our purpose, our calling on this planet is to take care of it. And then what about the inequality that we see? Micah 6.8. Many of you know, God has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? Just, justice, to, to act justly and mercifully. Justice means to do what is right by everybody, to consider the welfare of everybody in the world, and to act in a way that benefits everybody as much as possible. That's what justice means. But then on top of that, mercy and mercy is even giving people better than they deserve. Even if you think they're not working as hard as you are. To give people better than they deserve. To show mercy as well. Job chapter 5 verses 15 and 16. God saves the needy from the sword in their mouth. He saves them from the clutches of the powerful. So the poor have hope and injustice shuts its mouth. How does God feel about injustice and in people who... Threaten the poor. Luke 4, Jesus is reading uh, the scripture in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. Jesus stood up to read in the scroll the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, unrolling it. He found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Good news to the poor. Jesus announces his mission in the Gospel of Luke by quoting Isaiah and saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, in the first words he reads, to proclaim good news to the poor. Are those charts that we saw earlier good news to the poor? So as people of faith, we're, con we're confronted. How, how, do we, how do we respond in a culture that taught me to ridicule climate scientists, that taught me to make fun of people who are bleeding hearts over issues of poverty, that taught me to mock people and belittle them. The, the very scientists who were, who, were, who were trying to help me take care of the earth, the scientists who were trying to help me fulfill my calling to take care of it, I was taught to make fun of them and look down on them. The same scientists who were trying to make the planet better for my kids and grandkids in the future, I was taught to call them tree huggers. And so it's been a journey
for me, and maybe the same thing is true for you. Where are we as far, as far as a way forward? Every week we've looked at polling data, scientific polling data of the American people. Where are the American people on climate change? Pew Research uh, found last year 67% of Americans uh, say the government is not doing enough to reduce the effects of global climate change. That graphic's up here somewhere. I know they can be hard to find. I've skipped around. Uh, so sorry for the confusion back there. So 67% of, uh, of Americans say the government is not doing enough to reduce the effects of global climate change. 62% of Americans say climate change is affecting their local community some or a great deal. 67% and, uh, and then 79% uh, of Americans say human activity contributes to climate change either some or a great deal. 77% of Americans say the important priority for the U.S. Um, uh, energy supply, sorry for the typo, energy supply should be developing alternative energy like wind and solar. And so 67%, 79%, 77%. Is that really that controversial? Are, the, are those numbers controversial? Is it, is it surprising that our laws don't necessarily reflect numbers like that. Why is that? With a growing gap in wealth comes a growing gap in influence. And so the will of the American people is not put into law, but the will of people who have the most money. And so in closing, I told a story about my, uh, my boy earlier. Um, a few years ago, we visited San Diego um, in the fall, and uh, it was actually it was Veterans Day. And uh, on top of uh, Mount Soledad, they have that big cross. And there was a Veterans Day service there, and, and uh, we, we went up to visit uh, on Veterans Day. And uh, you can see this cross, you know, from, from the surrounding area. It's a huge cross on top of a mountain. And my son always loved to explore, like all little kids. He wanted to take a little hike. And so he, he walked, you know, 10 or 15 feet down the side. It's not steep. You just kind of, it's a little trail over, over the hill. And, and, um, and then we took a selfie together, and then we walked back up. And I have a, a photo. This is the walk back up Mount Soledad. And you see the cross right over here. It's, it's kind of tough. You just see the very top of it. And, and he was trying to climb back up the mountain, and this is, you know, him as a little boy, and, and he was having a hard time. He wasn't smoking his old man at this point. He was having a hard time climbing back up, and he kind of got lost, and he was short, and he didn't quite know which way to go. And I was behind him just like this, and I said, I said oh, buddy, just to, to get back to the top of the, the, top of the hill, just, just watch the cross. Just keep your eyes on the cross. And I thought, oh, watch how fast that ends up in a sermon. That's too good. Not to quote later on, oh boy. And so we watched the cross, we kept our eyes on the cross and got back up to the, to the top of, of the mountain. I think that's the challenge for anybody who really wants to follow Jesus Christ. And I don't mean the version of Jesus that has been hijacked for political reasons with a lot of money behind it. I mean, when we read the Gospels, and we read about who Jesus is, I think that's our challenge. As thinking, compassionate people who want to follow Jesus, it's to keep our eyes on the cross. By keeping our eyes on the cross, we see 
what Jesus values, what Jesus cares about. And it, it makes it a lot more difficult for us to be duped. Regardless of how much money is spent trying to influence us, because we're focused on the cross and, and what it represents, who Jesus is. And so we're not, we're not as vulnerable to messages that actually may completely oppose the purpose of Jesus in this world, only using his name in vain to support those causes. I think the challenge for us is to keep our eyes on the cross. So when it comes to the, the, the growing wealth gap in the United States and how it's affecting everybody, especially the most vulnerable, but many of us here, and when it comes to science and our view of climate change and, and what we have to do to care for our planet the way that God has called us to care for our planet, perhaps the key is just to keep our eyes on the cross. I invite you to pray with me.